Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Wednesday. You know what day that is. You know what that means. We're in the studio. This is Who's This Podcast for. My name is Nate. We're back, man. Um, Hope you're having a good week. Half of the week's over. Almost at Labor Day, meaning it's almost September. Hopefully this weather gets a little cooler. You know, things kind of cool down a little bit. Put our boots back on. Put our flannels on. All that kind of good stuff. And these leaves start to fall. It's a beautiful time of year. So Labor Day pretty much signifies that that's on the horizon. And we're almost at Labor Day. So also three-day weekend. You can't beat that. So that's good. I hope you're, again, having a good start to your week. You're almost there to the weekend. Uh, As for me, um, trying to figure out where this pod's going. You know, I like to talk about it openly. I was doing a lot of pondering before I started recording about what we're going to do this week. And I had some things planned, but at the last minute, I didn't really want to do them anymore. And, um, you know, I know we're taking a little break from the watch along. Can't depend on that every week to to do things. Um, So, yeah, I'm just I'm just in the mode of figuring it out. What I can give you is my latest criterion that I just got yesterday. Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, 1959, starring James Stewart, Lee Remick, Ben Gazar, Arthur O'Connell, Eve Arden, Catherine Grant, and uh, Joseph N. Welch, and a very young George C. Scott. I'll read a little bit of this to you. A virtuoso James Stewart plays a small-time Michigan lawyer, takes on a difficult case, the defense of a young Army Lieutenant Ben Gazar, accused of murdering a local tavern owner who he believes raped his wife, Lee Remick. This gripping envelope pusher, the most popular film by Hollywood provocateur Otto Preminger, was groundbreaking for the frankness of his discussion of sex. More than anything else, it is a striking depiction of the power of words, featuring an outstanding supporting cast with the young George C. Scott as a fiery prosecutor and a legendary attorney Joseph Ann Welch as the judge, and an influential score by Duke Ellington. Anatomy of a Murder is an American movie landmark nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. 161 minutes is the runtime. Looks at 1959, black and white. Uh, heard about this, and the guy Otto Preminger in my book that I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, where he interviews uh, like 16 different directors. I thought I could see the title of it from here, but I can't. Um, and I just learned about Otto Preminger and his work, and this is the one I saw on Criterion that was the most interesting to me so i got it love the cover the uh the cover is done by saul bass very famous legendary uh poster maker for hitchcock and others so that's exciting uh want to talk about that also this past weekend i went to see two what i would consider classics in the theater one being jurassic park and the other being american graffiti and i want to give a quick review of both something that I took from both basically Jurassic Park I really want to see it I hadn't seen it and I want to see what all the all the hubbub was about you know a lot of people say it's one of the best movies ever and it's it's up there for Spielberg and I watched it and I did not think that I thought it was very slow at points um all I heard going in was the pacing and the structure of the story and while I can't recognize it's uh it's a pretty good you know, structured story in terms of a three-act structure. 
uh, it didn't really hold up to me as a story. Maybe I had heard too much about it, seen too much about it, whatever, but uh, it just didn't do it for me. Uh, I was falling asleep at certain points. And, you know, I, I just seen better from Spielberg. I think that's it. I, I, I don't dislike it. I just don't, don't think it held up. American Graffiti was great, though. And uh, that really shocked me. Uh, not really shocked me because I knew that I was going to like it, but that did more for me than Jurassic Park in many ways. And I saw a lot of influence um, out of that movie and say something like Licorice Pizza. And um, right down like certain scenes and the title card and everything. I'm like, wow, he really took a lot from this movie. Which I knew that that was an influence, but not that much of one. Um, But I loved American Graffiti. Just these kids driving around in the last night before some of them leave and go off to college or whatever. And and the main guy, Kirk, is trying to figure out his life. Um, The one gripe I had with it is that it could be considered a comic book movie and a comic book movie based on uh, William Goldman's idea of a comic book movie based on his, um, you know, in, in his book, Adventures in the Screen Trade. Um, and I noticed that at the end, it's not a spoiler, it's been out for like 50 years. I noticed at the end when, when uh, the Harrison Ford characters in the car crash and him and a girl get out basically okay, like hardly hurt. And it was such a big car crash. I know that could happen in real life, but the odds are very slim and movies aren't about odds. I don't know. I just think it would have been so much more impactful if the girl, because of how much we've learned about her throughout the course of the night, if she died in a car crash, that would have been such an impactful moment. And I think it would have really, you know, made a difference, but it doesn't detract that much from the movie. But I was actively thinking about that after the fact, like, hmm. Both of them got out pretty much okay. I know that, that that they had some scratches, but I just personally didn't think it was enough. Um, I want to look through to that part in William Goldman's book. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just the aspect he talked about uh, comic book movies or what he deems them to be. I'm setting the mic down if you if you hear a lot of noise. Let's see here. See if I can find it. Yep. I think I did do this once before, but it won't hurt to go over it again. Um, His idea of comic book movies. So now let's try and take some of this and apply it to comic book movies. None of these are meant to be strict rules, but more often than not, I think they're true. One, generally only bad guys die. And if a good guy does kick, he does it heroically. And none of the good guys die. I don't think anybody dies in American Graffiti. So two, there tends to be a lack of resonance. Like the popcorn you're munching is not meant to last. I guess that that, I think that that could be attributed to uh, American Graffiti. The movie turns in on itself. Its reference points tend to be other movies. If, for example, there had been no Saturday afternoon serials, there would have been no frame for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I wonder what uh, George Lucas, where he got American Graffiti from, from in terms of, um, you know, an idea. Might be some credence to that. 
So that four, and probably most important, the comic movie doesn't have a great deal to do with life as it exists, as we know it to be. Rather, it deals with life as we would prefer it to be safer that way. I do think American Graffiti is kind of safe. Again, if they killed the Laura character, I think her name was, at the end in the car crash, as Steve rides up, you know, her um, her boyfriend, and she's dead, I think that would have been so monumental. And the fact that it doesn't happen and everything gets resolved, it does scream of a comic book movie, according to William Goldman. Um, I do think I read this this section before the Ecology of Hollywood. I'm pretty sure I read this before. Um, but I want to read just a little bit of it really quick. Let's see here. Um. So okay, but first matter of definition. I've used the term comic book movie several times, and I think it's only fair that I tell you precisely what it means except I can't do that, primarily because we get into matters of personal taste. What I find a comic book movie you may totally disagree with, and you may be right. For example, I think The Deer Hunter, the searing indictment of American involvement in Southeast Asia, was a comic book movie, and I think Bambi, yes, I know, it's an animated cartoon, is not. But if I can't give a precise definition of what the hell I'm trying to say, at least I'm able to give a few parallels, which should help set the parameters of what I'm after. Food, empty calories, not underlined, not junk food, which has a pejorative connotation. Please remember that in none of this am I making a critical judgment against the comic book movie. But as an example of empty calories, put down potato chips. Television, the only primetime entertainment series that is not a comic book program is MASH. Not because of its outstanding quality, but because every scene in MASH, no matter how wildly farcical, is grounded in the madness of death. That is what gives it gives it its tone. That is the heart of the piece. You can make mash into my mother the car easily enough. Just keep those same wonderful actors and stick them in a giant army training camp here in the States. And the wounded are simply guys hurting fights or drunk driving accidents. Of which, by the way, there are more than plenty near any major army post. And what you've gotten then is a bunch of goofy servants grousing because they're stuck in the service and not out in the civilian world making a fortune. It might be just as funny. And just as successful and absolutely will be exactly like every other series on the air. Music, bubblegum songs, Billy Joel, Elton John, etc. The kind of singer-songwriter who basically appeals to pop music's target audience. The teeny boppers who buy albums. The Beatles began as bubblegum musicians. I want to hold your hand and the like. Then they changed Lennon and his solo albums. Then I write bubblegum music. McCartney, the most successful songwriter in history, still does. And then he gets to his points. Uh, and real quick, he explains how The Deer Hunter is a comic book movie. And I would like to touch on this very quickly. I still need to adjust my station. Okay. So let me briefly explain now my feelings about Bambi and The Deer Hunter. Does anyone remember, say, the last part of The Deer Hunter? Saigon is going up in flames. And Robert De Niro, an ordinary guy with no context in high places, is out of service and back in Pennsylvania. He hears about his old buddy, Christopher Walken, who's still back there. Shazam, De Niro's in Saigon. Now the entire world is trying to get out, but somehow De Niro gets in. He finds Walken. Do you know what Walken has been doing all this time? He's been playing the game of Russian roulette with real bullets. The Russian roulette pool was made up by the movie's creators, by the way. It didn't happen in reality. For months and months, Walken has been taking on all comers in this Looney Tunes Russian roulette, and guess what? Wapo. He's undefeated, untied, and unscored on. 
it will take a computer a while to give the odds against that happening. But never mind, because now we're into the confrontation scene. De Niro versus Walken at Russian Roulette. If you looked at the building of the picture on your way in, did you ever doubt who was going to win? Zap. De Niro's unscathed, but Walken dies with a touch of the heroic smile on his lips. All this was exciting, and I enjoyed it every bit as I used to be enthralled by Batman, having it out with the Penguin, and precisely on that level. What Deer Hunter told me was what I already knew and believed in. No matter how horrid the notion of war, Robert De Niro would end up staring soulfully at the beautiful, long-suffering Meryl Street. So I say in spite of its skill and the seriousness of its subject matter, we have here a well-designed comic book movie. Nothing shook my world. Okay, Bambi. If the shower scene in Psycho was the shocker of the 60s, and for me it sure was, then its equivalent in the entire decade of the 40s was when Bambi's mother dies. And what about that line of dialogue? Man has entered the forest, and the fire, and the incredibly strong anti-violence implications. The NRA will probably pick at the movie today. I know it was a cartoon. I know Thumper had one of the great scene-stealing roles. I know there was a lot of cut scenes, but I left that movie changed. It had and has a terrifying sense of life to it, and not life as we like it to be. You may think I'm crazy, and you may be right, but Bambi still reverberates inside me. So basically, movies, to him that are comic book movies, are the stuff that's safe and easygoing, and there are no real stakes. And then the movies that stick with him are the ones that challenge you in a way where maybe when your favorite character is killed, you know, or or any of the other things that he mentioned. Um, Bad uh, comic movies, generally the bad guy dies. If a good guy does kick, it's heroically. Lack of resonance. It's not meant to last. Movie turns in on itself. Uh, Combo movie doesn't have a great deal to do with life as it exists, as we know it to be. Rather, it deals with life as we would prefer it to be, safer that way. So it just seems to me combo movies are safe to William Goldman. And non-combo movies challenge you in a way. That seems to be the difference. This is now let me circle back to Gunja Den and make strictly a judgment call. It is my absolute opinion that in every conceivable way, direction, script, star performances, special effects, emotional power, it is infinitely superior to any of the five Lucas Bird, I mean Lucas Spielberg prize winners, those being E. T. Jaws, Raiders, Star Wars, and Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. Jaws, E.T., and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Uh, Gunja Den was released in 1939, and when it came time for the Oscar balloting, it received a grand total of zero nominations. Um, and then he goes into different sections about all different kinds of movies that come out that don't get nominated in what is considered good years. Uh, and I, I again, I've read this other stuff before, so so I won't go into it again. But uh, I just think that that's such an interesting concept, the idea of the comic book movie. Not even just comic book movies, like movies with people dressing up in spandex or whatever, but the idea that even other movies can be comic book movies. And I kind of do that in my own life. I'm like, this is a comic book movie. This isn't. I do think Jurassic Park is very clearly a comic book movie. And that's probably my biggest problems with it inherently because there are times when somebody should die or something should go bad and then it doesn't. 
and you know it's just because they're trying to play it as safe as possible. Which is fine. You can enjoy comic book movies and you can actually love them, but something will hold you back. Something held me back from them. And, um, you know, it is what it is. And the mo- and even American Graffiti has a little bit of comic book movies in it, even though I like it more than Jurassic Park, because it's holding back at certain times. And, uh, you know, I personally, I, I just want you to go there. Doesn't mean every single character has to die. But if you introduce that death aspect, especially in the case of American Graffiti, if you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about, where the car flips over and over and over, then you know that, you know, if you introduce it, you probably should take it there, especially for a character that you love, because I think it'll make it more, you know, it'll add more uh, stakes to it. It'll make it feel like a bigger deal than it is. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. Um, American Graffiti, for how much I loved it and I really did, it didn't quite go that extra step to really solidify it as great, great, great. I would just give it two greats instead of three or four. But again, that's it's okay. You know, it's not that big of a deal. But it means something if you're trying to really elevate a movie and a film. Also, it sucks that George Lucas didn't make more stuff like that like as soon as he did american graffiti right after that he went to the star wars stuff and it was kind of done right like star wars and then he started helping spielberg with all of his stuff but i'm like eh, like you could have done much more like american graffiti and my opinion would have had a better career but it's not what he wanted to do he didn't do it and we got what we got now 40 years later you know we are where we are. Um, let me take this time to say rest in peace to Wyndham Rotunda, who is Bray Wyatt, the wrestler. He passed away last week sometime. Also, Terry Funk, a member of the legendary Funk family in wrestling. He passed away as well. Uh, one was much older than the other. Um, you know, one is easier to digest than the other because one is almost 36. And that's just never going to be, you know, able to swallow going somebody going at that age. But it made me want to watch Terry Funk. Um, no disrespect to Wonder Rotunda and Bray Wyatt, but Terry Funk, especially in his heyday, was doing the kind of wrestling that I personally wanted to see. That I remember as this, you know, as being, you know, the real wrestling, so to speak, to me. So I want to find a quick Terry Funk match uh, from his heyday and see. Was this Saturday night main event in 1986? Hulk Hogan versus Terry Funk. Wow. Tribute. Um, Let me see here. Some of these I have seen already. Like the one versus Jerry Lawler, the one versus Bruiser Brody. I didn't know that he wrestled. Uh, Hulk Hogan in 1986. I'm going to have to check some of this out real quick. This is Saturday Night Main Event. Uh, January 4th, 1986. Hulk Hogan versus Terry Funk. Didn't know this existed. This is crazy. It's like a fever dream. Let's see here. I'm going to watch some of this real quick. 
if you want to know the channel so you can watch along, it's Sat Night's Main Event All Together, all one word, on YouTube. And it's, it says SM, SNME 1486 Hulk Hogan versus Terry Funk. We'll see how Hulk works with Terry. They do a lockup, shoot off, two shoots off. Big clothesline by Hulk in the corner. Then he goes to the crowd and starts to cheer and Terry Foss. Yeah, this is prime 80s wrestling. At least WWF wrestling where it's, you know, a lot of hot dogging. I got off of it. It's not what I want. No disrespect to him, but. So SmackDown did a 10-bell salute for Bray Wyatt and Terry Funk. And I remember WWE Hall of Famer Terry Funk. That's nice of them. I guess you had to. Um, let's see here. I don't know who I want to do. Did I do the Ric Flair Terry Funk I Quit match? Clash of Champions 9, 1989. I guess I could. I feel like we've seen that already. I want to do a, a lesser known one. Let's go to Japan. This is Terry Funk, Japan. See something from over there. I personally think he was giving his best work. Um, kinda. You got Stan Hansen, Terry and Dory Funk versus the Royal Warriors. That could be a decent one. CM Punk pays tribute to his hero, Terry Funk. AW, that's nice. That wasn't on TV. That was after the fact. I was saw that. Legendary career, Terry Funk. What do I want to? The Sheik, the Funks versus Abby and the Sheik. So this is a do little butcher in the Sheik seventy nine. Hold on, I'm see a few minutes of this real quick. Cause that's interesting. I haven't seen a lot of the Sheik. Um, you know, before WWE or WWF. But they say the Sheik was as over as anybody. Was that uh, up in Ohio, I think? So you got the Funks coming out. Terry and Dory Funk Jr. This is 1979, July 15th. Whereas Abdullah the Butcher and Sheik. Abdullah's the madman with the fork. The Sheik is. Well, he's the Sheik. And then Terry Funk comes in with the Adidas tracksuit. The, like, with the blue trunks. It's like beige and brown Adidas track suit, or at least Adidas track top, and then the the blue trunks. I want to see the Sheik. I'm skipping ahead, and they're coming through the crowd. And the crowd, the, those Japan crowds in the '70s are crazy. As big as the Funks were in Armadillo, Texas, and around the United States, they were just as big in Japan. But she comes out and all his garb. Abdullah the Butcher there, hand taped up. Big guy. I love that Terry Funk only had one um one of his knees got the pad on it. The other one doesn't his right knee is padded up. I just think that's so cool. Terry Funk was such a cool wrestler. I'm talking about when he was not Chainsaw Charlie. 
But the Sheik looks oh, This can't be the Irish Sheik. we got to be two different guys. Because this Sheik looks old for 1979. So it's how they had to be, you know, back in the day. Guess I was thinking of the Irish Sheik, but that's not him. Yeah. Rest in peace, Terry Funk. Rest, rest, rest in peace, Bray Wyatt. I'm going to go to what I really kind of wanted to go to real quick. Bockwinkle, Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens versus anybody. Ray the Crippler Stevens. These two. Nick Bockwinkle is widely considered maybe the best worker ever. Bockwinkle. And Ray Stevens was no slouch either. And as a tag team, people say that they were one of the best tag teams of all time. Nick Bockwick has some great contests against Kurt Henning in AWA in the 80s. Yeah, Bockwinkle and Stevens, tag team. We got them versus Dr. X and Andre the Giant. The High Flyers versus Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. Let me go here. That one versus Terry Funk. Hold on. Don't, let me, don't tell me. It was a Nick Bockwinkle versus Terry Funk. See, I would like that, but I'm trying to see Ray Stevens as well. Otherwise, I, w- I would watch that one probably. They don't have uh, them versus Crusher and Dick the Bruiser. Uh... Let's see. Dr. X, Andre the Giant. Versus Sergeant Slaughter and Greg Gagne. Versus Sabisco and the Super Ninja. Oh, this might be the one. Larry Sabisco is another underrated guy for me who I just didn't appreciate enough in his heyday. Um, and he was still wrestling into the 90s at a high level. And a great last name. The Sabisco um, Bruno San Martino turn, one of the biggest turns ever. biggest turns ever, especially for Madison Square Garden, that that New York area. Huge turn. I might turn that on actually real quick. I want to see a little bit of uh, Bockwinkle and Stevens versus Sabisco and the Super Ninja, whoever that is. But look at Bockwinkle and Stevens. I liked how everybody dressed back then. They got the jacket with the tights. They look like athletes first and foremost. Even though they look like dads. Because they are. And they're like grown men. Everybody look now look so pretty and so skinny. These guys look like, you know, grown men, you know. Look like athletes, but not like, you know, super athletes. Like they worked out, but they also drank beer too. Super Ninjas, 285 pounds. And the corner was a Bisco. It's called the, what was this, the Sportatorium? Rowboat Sports Pavilion. And this is ESPN TV taping February 20th, 1987. Let's see how we get this started. They were both older by this point. Think their heyday. Talking about Bach, Wiggle, and Stevens was in the 70s. 
But Barkwinkle could go at any age. That didn't matter. And now we're getting it started. It's Stevens and uh, Zabisco. Zabisco with the black trunks, the boots, and the uh, no tape or anything on his arms. But Stevens is the same way. Knee pads, boots, trunks, and that's it. Backed him up into the corner. Ref got in between them. Now they're going for the test of strength, but Zabisco does a float over. And Bachwinkle and Stevens cheating. And it gave him a big toss. And Zabisco bails out. Listen to the crowd too, man. I gotta go look it up. Zabisco turns on um Z Zabisco. How you spell that? I think I got it. Z B Y S Z K O. Larry Zabisco. Turns on Bruno Sammartino. I didn't have to type it in. It was already right there. This was 1980. In the WWF, I think it was about this time. Oh, my gosh. Young Vince. Larry Zabisco attacks Bruno Sammartino during a televised bout between the two. That led to a huge feud later that year. So McLean's and Wild Lessons Morrison look pretty real back then. Let's see here. Let's see here. So one of the greatest heel turns of all time. Larry legit became the most hated man in wrestling with this. I guess this is the moment. So they're showing the match, but Vince and Bruno are commentating over it. And mind you, it, Bruno San Martino is part of it with Larry Zabisco. And uh, 
So yeah, they took it very seriously back then. It was not a big joke. They took very thing very seriously. Oh, this is from the Crazy Cat 68. If you wanted to watch along, it's not that long of a clip, it's like a few minutes. So Zabisco is getting upset because Larry is pretty much schooling him in the rings. Larry's the master. I mean, Bruno's the master. The master is Zabisco's his protege. And so now Zabisco snaps. And the crowd becomes incensed. And he goes and gets the chair. So it gets color too here. You can see kind of when he gigs. 
But they did it so much quicker back then and now. And they're not cutting to all these close-ups. That they laid him out with three chest shots and bust him open, he leaves. And the crowd is going crazy. Then we go to Bruno Sammartino versus Larry Zabisco. Cage match. It's like two minutes. And I know what this is. This is Shea Stadium. And a cage match. I said, I would love to see like the entire lead up to this. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, not going to watch all of that, but coming back. All right, back. Like I said, I don't, don't know what I want to do today. So I just got on and just kind of, you know, really start talking really, you know, um, I think that's okay. Uh, we just get on here and just see what happens, you know? I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. But um, the things I wanted to talk about, like I said, talk about them next time or later. Whatever, but I just I just didn't want to do it this time. And, you know, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. But now I'm just looking through a few of my favorite YouTube channels, seeing if there's something there that maybe we can look into. Um, I don't think it is here. But really getting into Gordon Willis and Conrad Hall and guys like these, these cinematographers. Uh, Gordon Willis did all the, the Godfather movies, did Annie Hall, did Manhattan. Uh, you know, so he's pretty, pre and uh, obviously other things. So he's pretty established. Call him the Prince of Darkness. He got the nickname from Conrad Hall, who did Butch Cassidy and, you know, some of these other films, some of these other great films. He's another really great guy. He did Cool Hand Luke, stuff like that. I'll save that for later. Let me see here. 
guess I could read another section out of the book, which is what I had planned to do, but then I kind of just was like, eh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. It's just a weird week. It's just a weird week. Felt weird. Didn't really uh want to do much of anything, but I still want to give you an episode, so that's what I did. Don't say anything on Conrad Hall film analysis. You'd think, right? I mean, it's a lot of interviews and stuff, but I mean, like, succinct or succinct. Like, Gordon Willis had a lot of videos dedicated to him. A lot of videos. And Conrad Hall, not so many. Maybe he's not as known. Maybe people just don't care. The Parallax View is a movie I want to see, and he did that one as well. He did Clute. He did uh, Parallax View, and he did All the President's Men, just to name a few. So he's he's as established as you can get Gordon Willis is, and The Godfather Part 1 is great. Can't wait to see The Godfather Part 2. I'm sure it's coming back to theaters next year. I haven't seen it yet on TV because I want to wait, and I will wait until it comes to theaters. Hopefully that's next year. But um, before we wrap it up, I want to go back to the book real quick and read another section that I really love. This book being uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. Let's see here. He has one on auteurs, which I read earlier. I don't want to read that. Everyone on beginnings, how you're supposed to begin a movie, how you're supposed to end a movie. I'll save that for another time. Speed, how fast it takes to write a script. Subtext. I could read this one, actually. I could. Protecting the star. Eh, maybe next time. Believing reality. This is one I think that's important enough. I do want to read this one. I do want to read this one. We'll do subtext next time. I pull this book out. It's one of my favorite books. I haven't finished it all because the last part is about his movies and I haven't seen many William Goldman movies, but when I would do, especially Bush Cassidy, I'm going to read that section. But let's let's read this and then we'll get up out of here. Don't take up any more of your time with my rambling. It's called Believing Reality. I was riding in a car one afternoon with the Canadian director, Norman Jewison. The next day, his daughter was to turn 21. A large celebration had been planned. Almost all of it to take place outside. Oh, this is a lot more than I thought. Hold on, man. It won't take long. It was gloomy that afternoon and the threat of rain growing. If it rained the next day, the party would have been considerably altered with very little notice. We were driving along and Jewison said, I wonder what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. As he said this, he flicked on the car radio and the instant he spoke the word tomorrow, the voice on the radio replied, tomorrow's weather is for heavy rains, flooding at times, etc. In other words, if you had closed your eyes and listened, you would have heard two run-on sentences without so much as a pause in between. Jewison and I turned to each other and simultaneously said, a movie moment. 
What we meant was, and this cannot be stated too often or too strongly, that the reality of a movie was almost has almost nothing to do with the reality of the world that we as humans inhabit. But every movie, from a Robert Flaherty documentary to Raiders of the Lost Ark, sets its own special reality. And once those limits are established, they may not be broken without the risk of fragmenting the entire picture. Let me talk about a scene from Raiders, a wild adventure story full of sensational action. Harrison Ford is the hero, and he's just discovered the Lost Ark. It's in a giant archaeological dig run by the Nazis. Ford is sneaking out of the place in disguise. He is of good cheer, having discovered the location of the Ark, but he's also blue because Karen Allen, the heroine, had been blown to death in an explosion. As he sneaks out, his discovery becomes impossible. So he quick spins into a nearby tent, and there, alive and bound and gagged, is Karen Allen. Not good. Then Lawrence Kasdan, the screenwriter, does a terrific reversal. Ford starts to untie Alan, and as he does this, they talk, and as they talk, he realizes that bad as the situation may be, she's better off left there. So he ties her back up, gags her again, and goes on his way. The whole scene could not be more charming, but if Ford had escaped with Alan, the movie would have been damaged, because the entire weight of the plot would have then rested on a monumental coincidence and would not have been acceptable, because nothing in that movie, not a single one of the previous adventures, had used coincidence totally as a device. Of course, it's possible that he might have stumbled into her tent, just as it's possible that Jewison might have, have might have his question answered instantly by the radio weatherman. It might have been real, but it would not have been believable. And see, there is a difference between believability and real, especially in a movie. Like, yes, you can justify anything, but should you? That's the biggest question. Let's continue. Believing reality is always a tremendous problem because the screenwriter runs dead into the problem of audience ex expectation and what they will and won't accept. Two examples now. One invented, the second a problem I had to try and deal with. Let's make up a caper film, the kind where the hero has to accomplish something that is clearly not capable of being done. You've already seen a million of these, ranging from Seven Samurai to Mission Impossible. Paul Newman is our hero, and his job is to get to the most famous and richest woman in the world, never mind the reason, maybe to kidnap her or exchange information or whatever. It doesn't matter. Getting to her is the problem. Because this is not Christina Onassis, someone he might meet at Studio 54 and say, Hi, my name's Paul Newman. We have to talk. If she's available, of course, his job is too easy and there's no movie. Our rich and famous woman must be totally inaccessible. Not only must she never see or talk to strangers alone, she also is constantly guarded by an enormous number of trained men. Plus, she lives, let's say, in a wild castle that is forever heavily patrolled and contains maybe 600 rooms. How is Paul Newman going to accomplish this task? Obviously, first and foremost, he must have a plan. And not just any plan. It's got to be intricate as hell, and it also has to be something he can't pull off himself. He needs, crucially, a gang. And not just any gang. He must recruit a group of specialists who may not be totally trustworthy, but the talent is of such international repute, he must take the risk. Now, the first part of the movie, then, is always taken up with the gathering of the accomplices. Here is a list of some of the people he might go after. Number one, an architectural freak who specializes in castles and has blueprints of the entire 600-room edifice down to secret passages, if any. Number two, an embittered ex-guard who is fired from the castle and wants revenge. Woody supplies his total knowledge of when shifts change, etc., etc. Three, a beautiful girl who will have an assignment with the head of security for the castle, so he won't be around when all hell breaks loose. Four, an explosive genius who can detonate a series of blasts to serve as a cover. 
Number five, a whiz at burglar arm so that wires can be cut at the precise second of the raid. Six, the world's greatest driver who will handle the business of the getaway car. There are half a dozen more possibilities, but these six will do. Newman will conscript them, train them, practice, and plan to perfection. Since we've all seen this kind of thing so often, I won't go on. But it's safe to say the rest of the movie will be the execution of the plan and mishaps that occur before Newman is triumphant. I don't know about you, but I buy this picture if it's skillfully made. It may not be real as my world is, but for me, it's totally believable. And again, that's the difference. Do you believe it or not? Not based on will it happen in the real world, because you know the real world is not movies, but is it believable in the framework of this narrative that you're telling? He said, I don't know about you, but I buy this picture if it's skillfully made. It may not be real as my world is, but for me, it's totally believable. Now, let me suggest a different plan, or rather, no plan at all. Newman just decides to go in and get to the fabulous one. So early one morning in daylight, he scales the walls of the castle, just decides to go up and over. I don't think I'm going to skim this part. Uh, okay. At last, Newman opens the rich lady's door, and there she is snoozing in bed. He opens the curtains to her suite. She wakes up quickly, buzzes for help. Only no one hears. This lady got an elaborate buzzer system, but when she needs it, no one's minding the store. Newman is now face to face with the richest and most famous woman in the world. Mission accomplished. The truth now. Have you ever heard anything so totally unbelievable? Well, it happened. That's exactly how Michael Fagan paid his little visit on the Queen of England in Buckingham Palace not long ago. Of course, it's unbelievable, but it's also real. It makes fabulous newspaper reading, but it has nothing to do with proper movie storytelling. And true as it may be, if you handed it in as a screenplay, you'll find yourself throwing it out without ceremony as a very uninventive writer of fantasy. My problem in dealing with the secrets for a bridge too far had nothing to do with fantasy. I was trying to describe an event that a great British combat general referred to as the single most heroic action of the war. The action involved the river crossing. The most effective way to capture a bridge is to attack both ends at once. This divides the enemy's resources and generally initiates panic and confusion. The bridge in question, a gigantic structure, was being attacked by Allied forces at one end only, and the Germans were so deeply entrenched that no advance was possible. So a plan was initiated to send a group of men in boats under cover of night across this wide, swirling river to the other end of the bridge behind the Germans. The boats were about to be loaded with combat troops and rowed across where the troops would get off, and the boats would return to the Allied side where more men, a second wave, would get in and row across and join the fight. The plan developed logistical problems. The boats didn't arrive in time for the night crossing, so it was now to be done in daylight. And when the boats finally arrived, they turned out to be dangerous and flimsy. Plywood bottoms and canvas sides, and there was a shortage of oars. Now, the first wave had one thing going for it, smoke cover. A barrage of tank fire was to lay down a giant smoke screen to help the men get across. Major Julian Cook was to lead the first wave. Robert Ruffer played the part in the film. And when the boats were finally assembled and dragged to the water and the men began to row, Something terrible happened, a wind came up, and it blew away the smoke screen cover. So there they were, in these tiny boats on this vast river, heading into God and only knew what. It didn't take long to find out. The Germans were ready and considerable carnage followed. But Cook led his charge and a lot of men died, but he got across. The boats returned and took the second wave across, and eventually, with both sides of the bridge being attacked simultaneously, the Germans were defeated. I think there is no question that we are dealing with valor here of a very high order, when we discuss Cook's Crossing, but that was not what the British general was referring to as the single most heroic action of the war. He meant the second wave. Sure, the first wave was a tremendous undertaking, but they didn't know that the Germans would be waiting for them, and they thought they had smoke cover. The second wave, standing there, watching it all, knew when their turn came they were going to get slaughtered, but when the boats returned, they got right in and rolled into the bloodbath. 
if you saw the movie, you saw Redford leading his men, and it was a splendid piece of action, but you did not see the second wave. Because even though it was true, I didn't know how to make it believable. Look, when John Wayne is in a movie, he doesn't arrive at the Alamo the day after the fighting. He is there, superhuman, beating up on as many Mexicans as the budget will allow for him. I didn't have John Wayne, but I had Robert Redford, and the same logic holds. The star must be in the center of the action. I could have written a scene involving the second wave of men waiting their turn, and one of them could have said, boy, what those guys are going through is no picnic, but they didn't know what they were dealing with. We know, and that means our job is going to acquire much more bravery. And the audience wouldn't have believed it, not for one minute. What's so brave about standing around on a riverbank, safe and unfired upon, and your buddies are out there in the middle getting shelled to death? And that's the star supposed to, and what's the star supposed to be doing during all this, besides maybe running up and down the embankment shouting encouragement? Roll you guys, we're coming. Some star, that's the Elisha Cook Jr. part. I tried as hard as I knew to use the second wave, but I failed. The single most heroic action of the war, and I couldn't figure out how to include it. The moral, I guess, is this. Truth is terrific. Reality is even better. But believability is best of all. Because without it, truth and reality go right out the window. Let me read that again. The moral, I guess, is this. Truth is terrific. Reality is even better. But believability is best of all. Because without it, truth and reality go right out the window. And that's the section called Believing Reality. And William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. Thank you for being here for this haphazard episode where nothing happened, um, but you listened anyway, hopefully. And uh, I can't promise I'll have better for you next time uh, because I'm still trying to figure out what I want this to be. And maybe more episodes like this will put lead me in that direction. I thank you for listening this long anyway. Have a good rest of your week. Labor Day is almost here. You almost there. Keep pushing on. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.